You're listening to the Teak Nation Podcast, where we strive to educate, inspire, and entertain you with tips and lessons from frauders and friends of TKE. Teak Nation podcast listeners. My name is Alex Swinson. It is Wednesday, April 6th, and we have quite the treat for you today. Donnie and I had an opportunity to talk to Frauder Brian Montgomery for this episode, uh, somebody who has worked under multiple presidents and multiple presidential administrations, um, knows the, the, the Bush family very well, George W. and George H.W. Bush, um, spent some time on the Grand Council, has spent time working presidential advance, spent time uh, in, uh, in the Housing and Urban Development Department, um, really uh, has done a little bit of everything in, in the government. And um, Brian's a friend. He's somebody who uh, I have enjoyed spending a lot of time with throughout the last decade, throughout my time on Teak staff. Uh, we were just really, really thrilled to have an opportunity to talk to him. One of my favorite interviews that we have done. And uh, I don't say that a lot. So you can uh, you can check the receipts on that. It's certainly not something that I, I throw around loosely. We'll get right into it and bring in Frauder Brian Montgomery. All right. The Teak Nation podcast is very, very excited to welcome in for the first time, good friend of the fraternity, Frauder Brian Montgomery. Frauder Brian, how are you? We'll so start well, here. thank you. Glad to be here. Excellent. Brian is a uh, past grand officer, a lot of other accolades and titles that he has held that I'm sure we will get into as well. But uh, I, I want to start the, the questions at the very beginning, the beginning of your Teak experience, Brian. And um, you went to University of Texas, very large campus, a lot going on there in Austin. What was it that brought you into the fraternity? Why Teak when there's all these other things on campus going on? Um, potentially have the opportunity to care for a bull, I believe. That's a, 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 an option there at, at UT. But a longhorn, I think. What's a long, sorry, I'm not from Texas. Um, what what was it about Teak that, that brought you in and, and that got you excited to be a part of the fraternity in the first place? Oh, great question. Um, you're right. Texas is a huge state, and the University of Texas is a huge school. And my best friend and I, we decided we started in Spring Rush, we decided, let's go through fraternity rush. My dad wasn't in a fraternity, although he went to the University of Texas. He'd been in the Air Force, and he was a, he was a married student. And But something about the fraternity life appealed to me, and my dad was supportive of it. So my best friend and I went through rush, went to some of the traditional houses. Everybody seemed a little stodgy, and, you know, um, you know the homes, the houses that had 100, 120 guys and had been on campus for years, but then we get to the teak house. They had been recolonized two, three years beforehand. And, you know, you, you can tell right away whether or not you're going to fit or not. And just something clicked for both of us. You know, our concern was one of us would go one way and one would go another. And, uh, you know, we thought it through. At the end of the day, we said, let's, let's, let's pledge, pledge teak. They had a nice home. Uh, we called it the trailer home on stilts. It was a massive house, but it was really ugly built in the, I think the fifties or something. And you had 24 bedrooms and big chapter room. And uh, it's amazing how much you miss it when you're not there anymore. So no regrets. I mean, I had a fantastic time as a teak at the university of Texas and uh, ultimately it was Hagamon and, and Preetness and, uh, and haven't looked back. 
So Brian, you've you've had some amazing relationships all across the board, inside the fraternity and outside the fraternity. But when you think about relationships inside the fraternity, I know uh, our venerable Grand Prudence is a good friend of yours, and there's another member of that group, Jack Bobbitt. And as I have come to know over the years, known as the Three Musketeers, can you talk about those relationships, how they were formed, and frankly, how you've continued to foster them after all these years? Because it's one of the unique things about Talk Up Epsilon or fraternities in general, how these relationships form at such a young age, but they continue for years and years and years. And the things that you all have been able to do together, I think our listeners would really enjoy hearing about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you don't think about when you're in your 50s or 60s while you're in your you know teens or early 20s but it's amazing i uh, i met ted at uh, he i think he pledged a year or so after me i didn't know him the the best friend i referenced before was a guy i grew up with in houston we played football together and i met ted and again i'll use the cliche but just something clicked and uh jack bobbitt who came uh, a little later i actually was friends with his older sister we went to uh, middle school together and uh, knew each other. And I had met Jack when I think he was working at a Baskin Robbins. And our, our crew in high school, would, even though he went to a rival high school, the, the Baskin Robbins was near the high school I went to. And the, you know, the, the crew would hang out at the Baskin Robbins and kind of raid the, the ice cream box there. And I think we'd put, you know, 50 cents down on the, uh, uh, down on the counter there. But, uh, so, you know, we just, again, all of a sudden, just through fate or whatever, the three of us ended up being Teaks in you know, 1978, 79, and we've been friends ever since. Um, even though we, some of us went down different cor- corporate paths and then a later kind of married up doing advanced work for, for you know, several presidents, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, and Jack's coming in and out of the government. You know, he, he worked for me at HUD as an assistant secretary and of course, Ted, you know, while he was doing a volunteer presidential advance, took more of the corporate path. But through it all, we we we've been in each other's weddings and um, been there when one of us have lost a parent. And uh, I'll just tell it for the young men listening. I hope you find uh, you know frauders that you're close with your entire life. I mean, I it's interesting. None of us had sisters. Excuse me, brothers. We all had sisters. We've all kind of treated each other as you know the brother. That, that we that we never had and i tell you there's no true adage the friends you have are life are more than likely the ones that you you make in college and uh, you'll you'll look back with fondness as you get older hey you know and by the way you'll tell the same war stories for years and years and you'll go to alumni weekends and you know the stories get a little embellished each time but that's that's part of the fun and uh so again no 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 regrets through through tke and through my experience at the University of Texas, was able to meet two gentlemen who have been my best friends for she's over 40, 40 years now. It's amazing. Brian, I mentioned previously you, you spent some time in the Grand Council, six years. And again, we'll, we'll talk into why you had to leave the Grand Council. Um, but you famously got Ted involved with the Grand Council, which I'm sure he thanks you for daily. Um, how did you get involved <laughs> in the council? How did you, how did that pathway open for you? What was that conversation like? I'm just curious. I, I don't know if I've ever heard this story personally. So I'd love for you to just share a little bit more about how you went from, you know, kind of on the outskirts of Teague, probably uh, at an arm's distance to right in the thick of things with the Grand Council, um, what, probably 10 years ago now. Well, you know, the fraternity will come in and out of your life. Some people will stay active for years. Some may get, get you know, 
focused on a family and a, a spouse and all that. Um, so I was working in the in the Bush administration. This is for George W. Bush, and I was uh, nominated by the president to be FHA commissioner. This was back in 2005, and got confirmed by the Senate. And the Federal Housing Administration is very engaged with the mortgage industry. And um, I went I spoke at one of the mortgage bankers conventions down in Orlando, and I and I met this gentleman, and I saw my God, that face looks so familiar. And he was a, the past chairman of the Mortgage Bankers Association. And he was very polite. Say, hey, why don't you sit at my table tonight for dinner? And he had his wife with him. And during dinner, his wife said, oh, we, they were talking about something. And his wife said, well, we can't do it that week. And you have a teak event. And I looked at him and I said, you are Grand Prix. And his eyes just got, you know, huge. He goes, yeah, Frauder. And it was John Corson. And uh, I remember he was Grand Prix when I was an undergrad, right? And so he got me re-engaged, which, which meant giving money. Ed Moy, who we worked together in the, in the White House, you know, he later was Grand F.I. Preetness, Grand Preetness. He got me involved in the, in the Grand Council. Uh, Father Corson got me involved, just re-engaged with Teak, donating money, you know, 17, 18 years ago. And, uh, you know, we, I was blessed to, you know, work in the executive office of president. There were, by the way, a lot of Teaks. Uh, it amazed me. You know, we had Teaks from the University of Washington, the University of Wisconsin, Ohio State. Um, and, and, you know, I always tell people, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here, but, you know, if it's down to two candidates and one of them was a Teak, the Teak will get it every time. And you just, you just, you know, you, you can't understand that when you're an undergrad, but I'll tell you later in your life, it makes a big difference. Huge networking potential too. Brian, can you talk about how you began your life in politics? Uh, as you have mentioned, you held so many different positions. And I, I know there's an, a million stories that I've been lucky enough to hear and hopefully be able to tell one or two for, for our listeners. But how did you get into politics coming out of college? What, what was that path for you that even drew you in any form or fashion to Washington, D.C. and serving our country? Well, I, I was blessed to get involved doing what's called advance work. Which are, which are the teams of people that plan presidential events. And I was a member of a, of a political club in Houston, mostly to meet young ladies, to be brutally honest. This is in the late 80s. And I met a gentleman who was doing um, advance work for Vice President George H.W. Bush. Okay, So he wasn't even president yet. This is the father, of course. And he got me involved and you know helping out on trips, driving motorcade cars. And, and I guess I impressed someone. I ended up taking a leave of absence for my job, I was working in the energy industry at the time to work on the 1988 Bush campaign when he ran against Michael Dukakis. And I had an opportunity to go up to Washington at the time, but uh, I was I went back to my job. Nine months later, some circumstances changed, and uh, I found myself moving up to Washington, D.C. to work in the executive office of the president. And, uh, of course, he lost. He lost his re-election to Bill Clinton. And uh, eight years later, is son is president of the United States. Nothing against him at all, but who in 1993 was thinking, gee, I bet your son's going to be president in eight years. And I had worked on his, uh, through my ties to the to the older Bush, I found myself working on George W. Bush's gubernatorial campaign in 1994. And of course, he ran for, you know, for the governor of Texas, won, got reelected. Next thing you know, we're running for president and we win, uh, you know, of course, after, after the recount. So, you know, I, I frequently tell people, yeah, I was blessed to spend 17 years of my life with the Bush family. You know, if you'd ask, you know, my 
Teague brothers, what Bush family they thought that I would work for, they probably would have said Anheuser Bush. And uh, but it's it's amazing how it how it, it turned out for me, and uh, been blessed to work for four four presidents of the United States, and uh, something I never never thought I would do. It's been a tremendous honor. So you mentioned, obviously, your time in the, the Bush administration that carried over into the early days of the Obama administration as well. And then you step away for 10 years and then 2018 phone rings. And this is what had this is what pulled you away from the Grand Council at the time as well. But what what went into that decision? Was there a back and forth? I don't know if I want to get back into this. Was it absolutely I'll sign on the dotted line tomorrow? Walk me through how that played out and and just what drew you back into um, into HUD in, in 2018 under Donald Trump. Well, after the Bush administration ended in, in uh, 2009, and then Obama was sworn in. Yes, they'd asked me to the Obama administration. Remember, we had this housing collapse, and they said, "Hey, can you stay and help us?" Because I was FHA commissioner. I ended up staying for six months, um, which, which, which I enjoyed. And uh, we ended up starting a company after that with some other gentlemen that worked at Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and one of them ran Jenny Mae. And uh, we were very successful, built the company up, sold it to a, a private equity firm in 2017. And uh, right after, you know, Trump had been sworn in. And I didn't, you know, I didn't really know Donald Trump. Again, I worked mostly for the Bush family. And they called me up to see if I, whether I'd be interested in being deputy secretary. And we just sold the company. So you're going from being a business owner to an employee. That's a big change, by the way. And uh, so they ended up picking another candidate, uh, a woman who's a good friend of mine still. And uh, But they said, well, what about your old job, FHA commissioner? Now, when I was FHA commissioner, the, the total of the, of the FHA insurance fund was about $350 billion. Twelve years later, it's $1.3 trillion. And FHA had grown to be about 15% of the mortgage market. So I viewed it as going back to be the CEO of a $1.3 trillion corporation, right? Because it runs like a business. You know, Congress requires you to keep cash reserves. You're an insurance company and uh, a mortgage insurer. And the money coming in has got to be more than the money going out that you pay, pay through claims. And uh, so I said, I, I said, I'll do it. Now I had to resign from every corporate board I was on. I had to even have to resign from nonprofit boards. Yeah, when you're a Senate, uh, you know, confirmed position. So it was tough to do. Uh, I'll admit, I'd really grown, you know, fond of being part of the Grand Council, but I knew it was in great hands with all of you, and certainly with uh, with Frater Barrisol. I should say Venerable Grand Preetness Barrisol now. And uh, so I, I served as FHA Commissioner again, and just barely a few months into the job, the Deputy Secretary decided she was going to go back to the private sector, and Secretary Ben Carson called me on a Sunday night. And, uh, yeah, I immediately thought, oh, some, some, we got to evacuate or something, you know. And uh, since he's a cabinet secretary in the line of secession, and he goes, ah, one of you wouldn't mind being acting deputy secretary. And I go, whoa, did something happen to Pam? He goes, well, I'm saying yeah, but she's going to, uh, you know, resign and go to the private sector. And so for a period of time, I, I was acting deputy secretary, commissioner of the Federal Housing Administration, and assistant secretary for housing. So I like to call it three titles and, and one paycheck. But the reason I did it is you could move the needle in huge ways, helping millions of people. doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican, government service at the federal level, being a political point, appointee. It doesn't even have to be Senate confirmed. It's just a wonderful experience. You're making decisions that affect the lives of millions of people in a positive way. You know, HUD has a huge mission helping a lot of people uh, who need a helping hand or maybe are senior citizens, lower income you know, families, you name it. 
and that's intoxicating in a good way. And you know, you, you, know, you, you leave your office every day, you may be bloodied and band-aids from the from the fight you had up on the hill, or even with people in your own administration. But you know, that day you helped millions of people, and that's a that's a great feeling. And uh, you know, when we walked out of there January twentieth, I thought, in particular, dealing with COVID for the previous year. I thought HUD did a did a pretty darn good job, and uh, you know, again, helping all those folks who had job interruption and couldn't pay their mortgage, couldn't pay their rent, and uh, I was glad to play a play a play a part in that role. Brian, can you talk about the Senate confirmation process? I think that's something that people watch on TV. There's political science nerds like me that enjoy that whole process, at least to watch it. Uh, but I can never imagine the amount of prep and, frankly, what it's like to sit in that hot seat where senators can ask you anything. doesn't matter if you're working for a, a Republican or a Democratic president. Either way, their job is to essentially peel your life apart, right, and make sure that you're qualified and going to do a, a good job. Just curious what that process was like in terms of prep. And then when you're sitting in the chair and you're on TV uh, and every, every answer you know is going to be played all over televisions across the country. Well, of course, a lot of it begins before that. You have to go through background checks, and I've been through 15 or 20 of those. And every time the FBI calls Ted and Jack, and it's the guys that keep the lies consistent. I'm kidding. And so, I mean, you're gonna you're entrusted with running a cabinet agency or being a deputy or a 1.3 trillion dollar fund. So there's an extensive FBI background check where they interview neighbors and friends and enemies. An FBI agent told me once, "We want to find the guy that doesn't like you." Uh, so everybody likes me. He goes, nope, there's some guy out there that I'd like. We want to find that person. I go, oh, well, that's great. Listen to the others, though, too. Anyway, so when you pass all that and uh, you, you open up your all your finances to the world, right, you got to fill out all these forms, and uh, you go up there for the hearing, and you think it's about you, it's not about you. And they figure, hey, you've gotten this far. You probably know what you're doing. But let's score some political points. But this is the, the party that's not that you're, you're not part of. By the way, Democrats do it, Republicans, Republicans do it, the Democrats. So the Republicans are there to protect your flank while the Democrats pounce on you. Now, I had done the FHA job before. And so, and, and you go, by the way, meet with some senators of both parties before the hearing. And some of them who are more kind of middle of the road, the Democrats would say, oh, you've done the job before. You know, I may beat up on you a little, but don't take it personally. And then you've got some others like Elizabeth Warren, who's just stridently partisan. They could care less if you're the most qualified or least qualified. They just want to come in there and score political points. But I'll tell you one interesting thing that happened in my confirmation hearing, FHA commissioner. I'm sitting up there getting most of the questions. There's two or three of us up on the panel. And um, I noticed, you know, in the middle of my hearing, they call backbenchers, the staff that sits behind the uh, senators. I saw one of them get up and kind of walk out of my field of view, a little unusual. So the hearing ends, and by the way, that's a huge relief to know that the hearing's done. Try to keep a straight face while the chairman of the committee says, well, the witness is excused. We thank you again for appearing. And on the outside, you're just going, well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. On the inside, you're going, thank God this is over with. So I turn around, and Katie, my wife at the time, and my kids were there, and she said, oh, that was so good. And my, my daughter, God love her, she says, the woman in the blue dress is mean, <laughs> talking about Elizabeth Warren. I said, Emily, she, she can't be. Anyway, I'll keep this apolitical. But my wife said, she goes, did you see that girl get up during the hearing? I said, no. Well, she brought this to Emily. She hands it to me. I open it up. And this is dear Emily. I just wanted you to know you must be very proud of your dad. I love the name Emily. My granddaughter's name Emily. 
I wish you all the best. Sincerely, Senator Sherry Brown. And I, and I, I look, here's the guy that just beat me up for an hour and a half. He takes the time, unlike some others, he takes the time to write a very sweet note to my daughter in the middle of my hearing. So I grab Emily by the hand and Thomas, and I go up there and I said, Senator, you didn't have to do this. He said, well, I just thought you might want to have something to remember this by. And, but you remember, we've got some serious issues we need to deal with. So, so you can drop your guard for a minute and, and be human. But so it's that type of bipartisanship you try to appeal to. You know, a lot of what's going on at these hearings, someone told me years ago, it's not about you, it's about them. Just just nod, you know, hold your ground, push back when you need to, and uh, don't take it in personally. But, you know, sometimes those hearings are on TV, and now they're all either recorded on C-SPAN or you can go to the committee website. So if someone's really bored that night, they can go watch just about every all the 25 hearings I've, I've done over the last few years. We'll have, to, we'll have to drop a link to those in the, the show notes for our listeners <laughs> yeah. to, to go rewatch. Um, I'm curious, uh, on that same note, and kind of extrapolating on what you were talking about, I'm sure you have a very unique perspective and a very unique worldview just about the way that I hate to be broad and vague, but the way things work, being so close to Washington, D.C. and so close to so many presidents, how does that shape your perspective on, on life and on how things operate and, and function in a way that maybe somebody working in the private sector, or a school teacher or a plumber, you know, somebody that just isn't in it every single day? How does that how does that affect you and how has that kind of shaped how you view the, the country and the world in general throughout the years? Well, the first time you kind of get exposed to leadership is if you're on a sports team, and uh, especially as you get to be an upperclassman. But when I was in antique, I was Hagamon, and then I later became Preetness. And even back then, the regional leadership conferences, which are smaller, less high-tech, obviously, than they are today, we'd have a lot of alumni turn out, and they would talk to you about their experiences. And here you are, all of 20, 21, 22, maybe. And you see these gentlemen, of course, at the time, we thought we're so old, they were in their 40s. And of course, now we, it's pretty young. But um, so I wish I had some magic formula. I would just say what, what I found that works well is you certainly have, have to work very hard. Uh, you you want to kind of be a differentiator in everything you do. You're the guy that works. You're, you're the last one to leave in the evening. You're the guy that volunteers for the worst possible assignment. You're the guy who's a good listener. Uh, you're, you're the person who never lies, who's responsible, who's trustworthy, and, uh, and loyal. I mean, politics values a lot. It darn sure values loyalty. And embracing a cause with your whole heart, as one of my former bosses used to say, is immensely rewarding. You know, you sacrifice a lot for that, whether it's a candidate, whether it's working for a nonprofit, whether it's working for the largest energy companies in the world, or one of the smallest businesses. You know, just put everything into it. And I know former our former Frater Reagan used to say, it's amazing what you can get done if you don't care who gets the credit. You know, Ronald Reagan said that years ago, and it's true. Somebody notices. I mean, it's, you know, it's amazing when you're working for a cause or a group, somebody will notice your hard work. And they're looking at you when you least think that they're, they're, they're watching you. And uh, so, you know, those experiences helped. And certainly when I worked for the first Bush and later the Sun, at that point, you know, people think, well, this guy definitely knows what he's doing. And that kind of opens the door for other opportunities. But early on, it's just important to 
to share those values, to have those values that, that you know, will help you do the right things in life. And uh, again, I got lucky too. You, you know, the, the political stars have to line up and sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. But again, no, uh, no regrets on the way it, it turned out. So Brian, we about a little over six months ago, we uh, passed the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And I know uh, there's a number of folks that pay you money to come in and speak for hours about that day and your life experience. Can you give just a 30,000 foot view for our listeners who have no idea of the role that you played in the, the day that you had in one of the most historic days in American history? Well, just to make clear, I don't take money for uh, speaking about September 11th, but if, if a group pays my travel, that's great. If they do pay me, I give the money to charity. So um, you know, I, I look upon it as for the generation of my parents and Tony, for your grandparents, it was kind of our Pearl Harbor uh, sneak attack that shook the whole nation. And uh, I still listen to those Pearl Harbor survivors. They're all in their 90s now. And because uh, it's important to me, you know, to share what happened on September the 11th. And uh, I was traveling with President Bush. We were down in Sarasota. Florida, visiting an elementary school, and all of a sudden the day, you know, completely changed for the worse. You know, I saw the the, the absolute best in people. Uh, everybody put politics aside, and uh, but but that day in particular, we didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, nobody did. We didn't know what was going to happen to us. We found out later people were going to try to fly an airplane into us. They may have hidden some chemical or biological agents at the elementary school. Um, you know, we, we got put on Cipro later that day, you know, a drug no one had ever heard of because they were they were worried about anthrax or something that might have been at the school. So, you know, we, we, we were at Emma Booker Elementary School and ended up at Barksdale Air Force Base. It's a nuclear base, so it had high security and then ended up at uh, Stratcom at, at Offutt Air Force Base, way, way underground, something I'd only seen in, you know, Hollywood portrayals. This was the real deal. And... Uh, I remember when, when, when we got there, by the way, all the while, George W. Bush, president, is saying, listen, I want to get back to Washington and Secret Service and Chief of Staff here with us for putting their foot, foot down. By the way, it's not easy saying no to a president of the United States. They, they're, they've got pretty forceful personalities. And Andy Carter, his chief of staff and uh, the head of the Secret Service detail at the time, were telling him, you know, no, sir, I'm sorry, we're not going back to Washington, D.C. yet. So. But when we when we got to, to Stratcom and went down in the, uh, the the bunker, we went downstairs through a fire escape, and all I, all I can remember is we went so far underground. When I got to the bottom, I asked somebody, "There is an elevator, right?" <laughs> they said, "Yes, there's there's several of them." You you went out the fire escape, so so thankfully on the way out we we took the fire escape. But I give speeches every year about this, and I did last year on the twentieth. Gave three or four different speeches, you know done a bunch of interviews on TV interviews, radio, print, you name it. And, uh, but on September the, the 12th, 2001, you know, President Bush was dying to go to the, to the, to the Pentagon, which had been hit the, you know, the day before. And I remember that morning when my boss called me at the White House, I went home literally had like an hour of sleep and changed clothes. And he said, you know, boss wants to get, we, just, we refer to the president as the boss. And, uh, you know, get your butt over the Pentagon and go scope it out. And, you know, that was, it was like the gates of hell over there. I mean, it was just, it was so bad. And uh, those poor people just, you know, thinking about them. But anyway, we ended up putting off the, the visit 
from that morning till that afternoon. And, uh, yeah, there were many moving things that, that, that week when we got to the, to the Pentagon that afternoon and just, just saw the clear blue, some firemen and soldiers rolled, unfurled a giant American flag off the top of the Pentagon, right next to where the plane had, had crashed into it. And of course, everybody starts chanting, you know, USA, USA. And same thing happened when we were at ground zero that Friday when, uh, you know, President Bush got up there with a bullhorn and, you know, said those famous words, you know, the whole world can hear you. And the people who knocked down these walls are here for all of us soon. Just the, just the look and the, the eyes of the construction workers and first responders and, you know, chanting USA, USA. And uh, it, it changed the trajectory of our administration, certainly changed the trajectory of what was important to, to the president. And, uh, you know, we're, we're all still living with that. And uh, quick sidebar, I, I, I'd driven by the school several times on business trips to Sarasota. This past uh, December, I was there for a conference and said, you know what, I'm going to see if I can go in the school. I had never tried to do that since September the 1st, 2001, September the 11th. And uh, just, you know, of course, schools now are heavily protected and literally look like a bank teller behind plexiglass. And I have a, several pictures of, of me in the school. I held one of them up to the glass and said, I'm in town on business. That's me. This is on September the 11th. And she looked at me and she goes, you're younger. <laughs> I said, yes, I am much younger. So she was very nice, one of the assistant principals, and uh, took me. She said, well, there's kids in the classroom. I'll take you to the media center where the kids built a little a memorial there and some artifacts. And it just so happened the teacher who was there the day we were there, she said, oh, I remember you. I was walking through with some kids. And she said, oh, this gentleman was here 20 years ago. And at that point, any concerns they had about whether or not it was legitimate vanished. And she said, the principal, when we finished talking to the students, she said, come on, I'll take you to the classroom. So we went over there. I'll just tell you, man, I just, you know, just the feeling of seeing that classroom was just overwhelming. But uh, anyway, it was uh, one of those days we'll never forget. Hopefully we won't live through it again. But uh, it's amazing I brought the country together for a period of time. And uh, hopefully we can, we can all start rolling in the same direction again. It can be good for the future of the country. Well, the one other story I'd love for you to tell, because you're a big sports fan, and Al and I are big sports fans. Anybody who listens to this podcast, they know we talk a lot about sports. Another moment that you're in the background of, every time I see the clip, when uh, President Bush comes running out of the dugout at Yankee Stadium to deliver that first pitch, I believe is in the World Series, but you can talk more to that. Yep, Arizona you, Diamondbacks. Yeah. yeah. Can you can you talk about that, being with the president as he's preparing to throw out the first pitch in the World Series, and they know – I mean, he knows every, you know, the highs of the world are going to be on him. And just, I cannot still imagine that <laughs> pressure to throw it across the plate, which he threw a beautiful strike. Uh, and also the, the things that were done in the tunnel, I've heard you tell that story before. I know people would appreciate that as well. Absolutely. So, of course, we're in the bowels of the old Yankee Stadium, and, you know, which even without 9-11, you can imagine the excitement with the crowd for the World Series. And President Bush is extremely athletic. Nonetheless, he's got to wear bulletproof not just a vest, but literally like a jacket that goes down over his stomach. I mean, it's, this, is a, this is a larger than you would think bulletproof vest. I'll leave it at that. And so he's warming up and he's throwing some pretty good heat down there in the, in the bullpen. And Derek Jeter walks in. And he goes, hey, Mr. President, how you doing? So oh, you understand if you throw out the first pitch, you know, by the way, he did this on HBO special later, a few years later. And he goes, yeah, he goes, where are you going to throw from? 
he said, well, I just thought I'd just, you know, I thought I'd just throw up on the front of the, of the mound. And Jeter, literally, I'm standing right there. Jeter goes, no, you can't do that. You, you got to throw from the, from the rubber. Because they'll boo you if you throw from up there. He goes, oh, no. He goes, trust me. So, you know, so he said, well, all right. So he gets up. He goes, there, starts warming up again. And uh, some other players came down there. Chris, they're all very, very respectful. And we went by the, the umpire's room, and he signed some baseballs for them. And, uh, so we finally got out on the field, and I'm standing there next to him. I said, sir, they're looking at out here. Just, you know, just you know, my job was really easy at that point. And uh, so he goes out there on the field, and, and I, I knew he was going to throw a strike. I just, I've seen him do that before, throwing a football or hitting a golf, golf ball. Uh, when he was governor, and he threw a strike right down the middle, and of course the place just went went nuts, as you can imagine. And uh, yeah, you, you've seen an HBO special on it. You know, they had the umpires lined up on the field. One of them was a Secret Service agent. He's wearing umpire gear, and he's got a you know an earpiece, and the camera pans. You know, the network camera pans them all. He's smiling. You can see his earpiece sticking out, and you know he's got every weapon you can imagine on him, and he's. Posey as an umpire, so he could be right on the field. Because normally they're right behind him. But uh, quick little other story about that. Years later, ESPN did a, a special on it. And uh, former President Bush's chief of staff called me and asked me my thoughts on it. I shared with him. And he goes, well, this, we're going to do it. This producer might, might call you up. And uh, so he ends up calling me and said, well, tell me everything you saw. That he said, well, this is who I've talked to so far. Is there anybody I'm missing? I go, yeah, uh, you, you haven't mentioned Billy Crystal. And he goes, Billy Crystal was there? And I, this is the producer. Yeah, he's up in Steinbrenner's box. He goes, are you sure? I said, I talked to him. I'm 100% sure Billy Crystal was in Steinbrenner's box. He goes, well, I got to call him. So what a wonderful guy to talk to, Billy Crystal. It ended up being in the, in the special, by the way. And the producer sent me a note afterward. He goes, uh, you know, thanks for mentioning Billy Crystal. He didn't put me in it, but he put Billy Crystal. Well, that's okay. Uh, anyway, it's just one of those moments. I'll tell you later in life, Donnie and Alex, I'm just pitching myself, go, how in the heck did I end up here? You know, here I am standing next to the President of the United States, days removed from attack on our soil, Yankee Stadium, World Series, and he goes out there and throws a pitch of a lifetime. <laughs> it was just exactly what the country needed. Doesn't matter what your politics were, it's exactly what we needed. Yeah, I, I'm always just blown away, fascinated the the some of the situations and moments that that you've lived through. Um, so I appreciate you sharing that. I appreciate you telling those stories. If it makes you feel any better. We have not asked Billy Crystal to be on the Teak Nation podcast, so um, <laughs> you, you got you got one back on him. Um, I just I wanted to wrap, and Donnie got into some of the stories. I know um, George W. Bush is a pretty eclectic individual, and you have had the privilege to spend a lot of time with him. Any non 9-11 related just interesting moments fun moments things that that come to mind about the time that you spent with him and and what pops in as the the one or two favorite memories well there's a couple of them one of them involves vladimir putin with given what's going on maybe i won't share that one but uh it was uh but i'll share one when i was director of presidential advance we spent a lot of time in crawford texas at his ranch and near waco texas and, uh, you know, I know people would say, oh, Bush is vacationing again. I said, no, instead of going to the White House in the evening, we're going landing at the airport in Waco and flying to Arizona or Oregon or Missouri, but we're coming back to Texas. And uh, so one of those trips, we uh, were having the, the 
Prince Bandar, the Saudi prince come, who didn't fly a helicopter. So they had this elaborate bus to bring him to, to the ranch from the uh, airport in Waco, which is about 45 minutes. And uh, so the press are there early, and I'm on the front porch of the, of the house there the, in, on his ranch, and he just comes out, and the press is about 100 feet away. Of course, they start taking pictures. They say, hey, Monty, how much longer for Prince Bandar gets here? It's there about a half an hour. He goes, obviously he starts looking. He goes, is who's that on Mrs. Bush's grass? And I'm thinking, what's Mrs. Bush's grass? I've never heard that one. <laughs> and I said, well, sir, that's all the press. He goes, well, you better tell them. They better get off Mrs. Bush's grass or your ass will be grass. <laughs> but anyway, it was a funny story. So. I started walking out toward, toward the press, the White House press. Like, oh, here comes the big guns. And I said, you guys get off, get off Mrs. Bush's grass. They go, oh, and then they all jumped off of it. <laughs> I later asked them, I said, what exactly is Mrs. Bush's grass? I guess it was some, you know, Texas A&M came up and their horticultural school came up with some strain of grass and named it after Laura Bush. Planted it there. <laughs> I don't know. They do a lot of strange things in Texas A&M sometimes, and uh, you know, maroon carrots and you know things of that nature. But uh, anyway, it's one of those lighthearted moments. Presidents are just like us; they have sense, good sense of humor, put their pants on one leg at a time. And uh, we had a good, a lot of good lighthearted moments, especially on Air Force One and uh, flying all over the world. And uh, you know, he, he could he could let his hair down and, and, and relax and. Uh, as could the, the cabinet secretaries. I remember sitting on a couch flying to Europe with, with Colin Powell, may he rest in peace. What a, what a good man he was. And uh, we're flying over the middle of the night. He's eating popcorn, reading a book. And I was dreaming about popcorn. I wake up and he's eating the popcorn. I get up off the off the sofa in the conference room on Air Force One. And he sees me. He goes, Monty, come over here. Have a seat. What's going on? Have some popcorn. I'm sitting there, thinking, I'm sitting there talking with Colin Powell on Air Force One the middle of the Atlantic overnight you know it's just we just sit there and shoot the breeze for about you know 20 30 minutes about just life in general he was really a special person it was really uh sad when he passed away a few months ago but uh what a great American hero he was absolutely yeah and, and appreciate you sharing that I am struggling a little bit with the Putin tease with you not giving any more is is there a high level uh, to that story that uh that we can get just because it's going to eat away at me if well I, so I was director of presidential advance right so my office did all the events outside of the White House and I would also travel with the president when we did those events and Bush and Putin did what we call the home and home series Putin came to Crawford first which was that's a whole other story and then we went to St. Petersburg, Russia. Like, I think I went to St. Petersburg, Russia three times before I ever went to St. Petersburg, Florida. And Putin was very proud of his hometown. This is before he went crazy. Uh, and part of that is touring the Hermitage and uh, the beautiful museum in St. Petersburg. And uh, while the advanced team was there, before we got there, the Russians kept saying, President Putin wants to take Bush to this castle outside of St. Petersburg. And the NSC, the National Security Council, says, no, we're not going to go to the castle. The 300th year of this castle is in two years. We'll probably come back for that. So we just told the Russians no and forgot about it. So anyway, fast forward, we're touring the Hermitage, and we're about halfway through the tour, and one of my advanced guys and a Secret Service agent come running up to me, 
like, you know, come here, come here. Cause I'm literally walking with the presidents. And uh, he said, one of the agents who speaks Russian just overheard the Russian security saying that Putin himself is going to personally invite Bush to go to that castle. And uh, I said, well, you know, we shot that down days ago. He said, well, he's going to ask him. And it's like 45 minutes away. And seeing certain that guy ain't going to work. So my job is to get to President Bush without Putin standing there and get him to tell him when he invites him to go to this castle, he's got to say no. So sure enough, we go about 100 feet. The first ladies are in front of us. We stop. Putin peels off to go to the men's room. And I look around. You know, I didn't see any Russian security closest. And sir, listen to what I'm getting ready to tell you. It's very important. He goes, yeah, what's going on, buddy? I said, Putin himself is going to invite you to go tour a castle. He goes, a what? A castle? He goes, what's the name of the castle? I said, the Peteroff Castle. And he goes, I never get it. He goes, Peter who? I go, Peteroff Castle. He goes, why can't we tour it? I go, it's 45 minutes away. He goes, that's not going to work. And I said, I know it's not going to work. And I said, so, but he's going to, well, the agents overheard in Russia, he's going to invite you. So when he does, you have to just say no, just politely decline. He's all right. All right. What's the name of that castle? And again, I go, Peter off. He goes, okay. So two or three minutes later, Putin comes walking back. We start strolling through the museum again. Again, five, seven minutes later, we stop again. And Putin pauses, looks at Bush and, and Russian, even though he speaks English. He starts asking him about the castle. And I hear the word Peter off. I kind of look at Bush like, here it comes. Before the interpreter could even finish translating into English, President Bush goes, ah, yeah, the Peteroff Castle, beautiful place. I'm sitting there thinking, you didn't even know this place existed until about seven minutes ago. And he goes, yeah, yeah, well, I'd love to go, but my guy here says it won't work. <laughs> and he points to me. <laughs> and, I, and I go, I'm thinking, well, that's not how we rehearsed it. And, and Putin looks at me in English and goes, that's unfortunate. And I went, oh, my God, I just pissed off Vladimir Putin. And uh, Secret Service agents looking at me, kind of, as, as we walk by, he goes, nice one, you know. And so I'm going, oh my God, you know, now I got to worry about getting a polonium milkshake delivered to my hotel room. So anyway, the ep the epilogue to that is we went to, a, we're in St. Petersburg, right? There's no embassy. It's a consulate. But Putin hosted a dinner that night and I got to go to it. And it's the last event of the evening. It's about 11 o'clock. So I normally don't ride in the elevator with the president when uh, for the last event because he's just going to his up to his room we're at a hotel but one of the secret service agents goes hey the boss is looking for you he wants you to come up to the suite i go oh geez. anyway they send the elevator down for me i go up to the suite knock on the door which is cracked open walk in he said sir sir you know mrs bush is with us i didn't want to see her and he goes oh hey buddy come in for a second i go yes sir he goes Hey, what do you think about me uh, dropping you in the grease a little Vlad earlier today? <laughs> and I said, yeah, sorry, I noticed that. He goes, yeah, that was a good one, wasn't it? Anyway, well, have a good evening. <laughs> I'm sitting there thinking, you called me up here just to give me some grief again about, you know. Anyway, we we, we laughed about that subsequently, at, you know, at a event at the Bush Center a few years ago. Uh, it was, uh, but, you know, again, they're real people just like us. And, uh, Stuff like that happens all the time, all the time. But we, we don't let people see what goes on behind the scenes. Well, that is uh, that was that was well worth me uh, me asking the the follow up. So I appreciate <laughs> you appreciate you getting into it. 
Um, can't thank you enough for the time, Brian, and, and the stories and the knowledge and the insight. Um, last question we always like to ask, just any any messages out there for, for Teak Nation, for the members, for the volunteers, for the folks listening? I know you've had um, a lot of a lot of activity in the fraternity for the, for the last 10 years or so, and I've had to step away just a little bit, but um, any anything on your mind that you want to share before we, we move along here? Absolutely. I just say, stay engaged with Teak. We absolutely understand, as, as, as happened to me and others, uh, other demands will come upon you when you get out of college, uh, a family, job track, but Teak will always welcome you back, and, uh, and, they'll, and they'll take you back. It's not just the money. It's your involvement. It's participating in RLCs or conclaves, or most importantly, with the local chapter. I can guarantee if you live in a large city, there's an alumni chapter there. You can meet frauders from all over the country. And uh, there's an RLC nearby. Go to the RLC and just you know help out, stay engaged, donate money. And uh, these young gentlemen need our advice, need sort of our perspective on life. And uh, you'll find the staff willing and able to to have you help and volunteer in ways. So again, just recognizing your life has other demands, but to the degree you can give back to the Teak, I know that they'll uh, they'll they'll take your help, whether it's money or as somebody used to say, time, treasure, or talent. Absolutely, that's I think that's a, a perfect perfect way to close here. Um, again, thank you, Brian. It's great to see you. Great to talk to you, um, and and really do appreciate the time. We will. Uh, Let's do it again. Sounds like there's many more stories that uh, that we can get through. So we appreciate it <laughs> greatly. Well, thank you again. I'm honored to participate. And one last gigantic thank you to Monty. Um, what a time. What stories. That guy has uh, lived many, many lives worth of of entertainment and experiences and uh, just to have 45 minutes of his time to chat um, truly special so hopefully you enjoyed that uh, hopefully uh, more conversations with him and and with others to to come and we will continue to bring you the uh, the best content in the fraternal podcast world which uh, again I think I have said that before and no one has come to debate me on it yet so we're gonna we're gonna keep rolling with it that is all we have for today thank you for listening smash that like button smash the hell out of it uh, like subscribe. I don't know where you're listening to this podcast on, but every podcast medium has a different way to say, I want to listen to this podcast, but whatever you do, make sure you are amongst the very first people to know when a new episode of the Teak Nation podcast is available. Thank you again. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.